0: We had the first full debate of the Cleveland mayor's candidates last night with the City Club and Idea Stream. We'll be talking about that on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jen Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson, back for his second day in a row. It's a Wednesday and it's really, really humid out. <laughs> Laura spent the day at Cedar Point sweating to death. I bet she's happy she's back in cooler air. Okay. (laughs) All right. Let's start. Why would the candidates seeking to replace popular U.S. Senator Rob Portman upon his retirement at the end of next year so vociferously bash the infrastructure bill that Portman negotiated? A bill that has widespread popular support in America, but not with Donald Trump. Jane Cahoon, this is. Not surprising, but it is kind of surprising. They're attacking Rob Portman, who's, you know, pretty beloved by the right. And they're attacking a bill that would do a lot for the economy. It's a big investment in America. And it seems like they're all doing it just because they're toadies for Donald Trump.
1: Well, that's what I was going to I was going to sum it up in one word. And that then that was Trump. But, uh, oh, I you know, it was going to be toadies. Oh. <laughs> well, anyway, the, you know, as you said, we already knew all of these GOP candidates who want to succeed Portman have all been sucking up to, to Trump to try to get his blessing in this race with with some of them really changing their tune from, you know, what they said in the past about him. So, yes, it's still a contest of who is the Trumpiest. But But this infrastructure bill really, you know, did put things into focus. As you said, normally in a race like this, you, you have a respected Republican like Rob Portman retiring. You know, the candidates normally would all be hoping to be anointed by him as his heir apparent, just as you might recall. I do, of course, because I'm old. You know, Portman had the blessing of George Voinovich, um, and he was encouraged and supported by him, his his predecessor in the, in the Senate. And... Um, and then, of course, you know, Portman put in all kinds of long hours over the last months working on this bipartisan package and and getting it over the finish line. Um, but no, there was no no acknowledgement of that, no no respect given to to Portman's efforts. They they basically the candidates basically followed the direction of Trump, who. Uh, as we know, had tried to sabotage this bipartisan bill by warning Republicans, you know, he wasn't inclined to endorsing anyone foolish enough to vote for it. He he views it as a political gift to the Democrats, you know. So we had Josh Mandel, Jane Timken, J.D. Vance, Mike Gibbons, and Bernie Marino all coming out and bashing this $1 trillion bill that, as you said, has has wide uh, public support and passed the Senate on Tuesday um, Sixty-nine to thirty. By the way, Portman correctly predicted that nineteen Republicans would would support it, and they so, did. But but um, let me
0: interrupt you because it wasn't just that they said, "I disagree with this. I I think America has too much debt. We shouldn't do it." They were vicious. They, yeah, they I was going to give you inf- a few examples. Inflammatory <laughs> language, ripping into it, which basically is saying Rob Portman is did a bad thing, and that that, that there, there's a way of doing this with some civility to make it more of an academic argument. But that's not what this is. This is, please, Donald Trump, give me your benediction. So what was some of the language?
1: Yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples. Mandel said, now is not the time for bipartisanship in D.C. Now is the time for fighting the woke liberal agenda. That's just like, you know, out of the Trump playbook. Think about
0: it. I don't want
1: bipartisanship. Yeah, I don't want bipartisanship. I mean, what politician says I don't want bipartisanship? Josh Mandel does. Um, Timken was a little more measured. She said she'd support some kind of targeted infrastructure spending, but she she you know thinks this bill is going to bloat the federal deficit, and you know so that was her criticism. JD Vance put out some kind of strange statements, I think, on social media criticizing like the equity provisions in the bill and mocking it for doing things like. You know, encouraging women to get in the trucking industry. And, um, you know, he brought like critical race theory into it and everything. And, and then uh, Gibbons and Marino were basically all about, you know, criticizing the spending of taxpayer dollars and adding to the deficit. Um, however, there was one Republican. That would be State Senator Matt Dolan, who's uh, not a Senate candidate, but he is openly considering it, who actually spoke in favor of the infrastructure bill and and commended Portman and, and said he would have voted for it. He said, you know, uh, that Portman constructed a common sense and long overdue infrastructure package that will not only benefit Ohioans with more jobs and but would improve, you know, roads, bridges, et cetera, and strengthen our economy without raising uh, taxes or contributing to inflation. And he said those on the extremes who oppose the bill, um, you know, are are placing petty primary politics before the needs of our state. So I wish yeah.
0: he if he just would run, I think he would immediately get a lot of support from people who are sick of this this Trump stuff. The JD Vance stuff is is odd. It's almost like he's he's going the Tucker Carlson white supremacist mm-hmm. route. It's I mean yeah. it's race baiting. Is that really how he thinks he's gonna get the nomination in Ohio? Is by playing the equity race guy? It's yeah,
1: just... it's I mean, especially considering what he said about Trump before yeah. and his attitudes about race, um, it's just...
2: It
0: seems like he doesn't really know what he's doing. It's... Uh, I mean, Mandel, you well, always He's got a lot of money nonsense. behind
1: him, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, but it's outside money, and I don't know that it's going to play well in Ohio. He's The early polling doesn't have him anywhere. Nobody even knows who he is. Well, and...
1: I, I think some of the polling has him... I mean, it has Mandel out front, but I think it had... Advance in second place, um, Dis- a, but a distant. distant. Yeah, yeah. But, I
0: mean he's single digits. I mean nobody. I mean, it, I mean it's frightening that Mandel could be the candidate. But for and for many Republicans, I know it's frightening because they think that'll give the seat to the Democrats. But to, I, I just I get back to there to get Trump's approval. They're criticizing something that most people is a universal good. Investing in roads, investing in transit, that stuff's all rotting in this country and other countries have maintained theirs. And so there's a lot of support for this, but they don't care about investing in America. They want to invest in Donald Trump. And they
1: obviously don't care about getting Rob Portman's endorsement either.
0: Right and right, and it's very disrespectful to a guy who that most people acknowledge has served his party well. You're listening to this week in the CLE, who did well and who did not in the City Club debate of the candidates for Cleveland mayor Monday evening. Seth Richardson, I I did not find this to be very enriching because there's really no pushback when candidates say baloney there was some pushback among the candidates as you wrote in your story but they shut that down and that's the part you want to see so what what are your takeaways who came out ahead who came out behind and what are your thoughts
3: yeah for for it being a debate there there certainly didn't seem like there was a lot of debate amongst the candidates right and Part of that's just a function of there being seven people on stage. But I, I, I do think it's something that you'd like to see more from the the candidates themselves at the very least. Um, I, I guess if we're going on who had a good night, I think, um, you know, Sandra Williams, I thought, did particularly well. She kind of was, you know, she was up there. She was making the case. It, in many ways, it was probably an introduction to a lot of voters who don't know a lot about her. Uh, she talked about the issues with, you know, a, some expertise and some specificity uh the big caveat of course is that she was not asked about house bill six so it's probably um easy for her to look pretty good when she she doesn't have to answer that and i I assume that'll you know come up later at some point but i guess we'll see if uh, she does have to answer anything about that on the big stage um you know obviously the uh the probably the 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 big moment from the debate or the uh the the set of dust-ups between uh, Council President Kevin Kelly and former Mayor Dennis Kucinich, where, you know, it's kind of started early in the evening where they were uh, kind of going at each other about cops. Um, Kucinich saying he wants to hire 400 police officers and Kelly coming up with, you know, some some facts from Kucinich's term back in the day where he actually ended the, you know, his, uh, you know, two year term down, uh, you know, police officer. We had fewer than when he came into office. We had fewer firefighters and the police went on strike. And I, I thought that was a good chance for, you know, some conversation about this, about basically what has been the number one issue to voters. And, uh, you know, it did. It, I, I think it unfortunately got shut down a little early. That, but, you know, that crept back up later when, you know, they started arguing about public comment and going into mutiny. line. I thought Kevin Kelly had a pretty uh, kind of a funny line, you know, digging it uh, at Kucinich over his book, you know, after Kucinich tried kind of, you know, promoting his book on stage a little bit. Um, thought that was you know at least one of the uh, moments of you know brevity and humor of the night uh, or levity rather uh, not brevity um, you know as far as the other candidates I I thought that there were a lot of missed opportunities here this is you know Zach Reed seemed like he very clearly didn't want to answer. questions, right? He, He did a lot of what he did with us in our interview where he spent a lot of time agreeing with the question that it was a question that should be asked and that it was stuff that should be taken seriously. But I didn't hear anything in the way of kind of plans or right. policy but, for that. But
0: the but the difference between we what you're referring to is we did 45 minute interviews for this special episode of this podcast. They finished publishing tomorrow, uh, where where we talked to each candidate. The difference there was when Zach Reed didn't answer the question, we called him out on it and said, You're not answering the question. You're 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 just repeating what we said. There wasn't any of that. I mean, the the, pro- the problem is, is Zach Reed is asked this question and he blathers on without saying anything and we just move on. And I, I, I wish there was some way where you could come back and say, OK, thank you, Mr. Reed. But you did not answer the question. What are you going to do so that the voters can hear that he doesn't have an idea of what he's going to do?
3: Well, I think, you know, I would have I think the candidates probably should have tried to, you know, take on that role because what a lot of these candidates need to do is basically set themselves apart from the field. I think, you know, uh, you look at Justin Bibb, who I think did a pretty good job of answering the questions, but I I think he missed a chance to really mix it up with some of the, you know, some of the people on stage, right? When he's running as this kind of ascendant figure, right? This, you know, the the true political outsider, so, so to speak. And I, I just didn't see him mixing it up with the other candidates and really kind of making his case. Uh, you know, I think the same of uh, Bashir Jones, who I thought really just fell kind of into the background really through most of it. I, I I was very surprised that he didn't try to kind of go after. I mean, he did a couple of times. I don't, want, and as did Bib, but. I I thought there probably could have there were probably more chances for them to do that and really sort of, hey, you know, stake a claim and say, hey, I'm here, I'm running for this. And here here is not only here are not only my plans, but here is why I am different from all of these other people on stage.
0: Yeah, the problem is we've talked about with Bashir Jones is he hasn't done the work. He, He talks a good game, but the minute you start to look for the substance, he doesn't really have. Much in the way of plans, and so I'm not surprised that the more he's out there, the more people see, the more people realize that that that's kind of there's no there there. Um, I mean, this I think is is coming down more squarely to it's Kucinich, it's Kelly, it's it's Justin Bibb, and it's Sandra Williams, um, who are who are putting concrete on the floor right? that that at least you can debate with reed and bashir jones giving you more of the platitudes i just wish the format were such that you could push back because it, it it doesn't work and you know it was only 90 minutes which and then and there's enough of a they, you know there's opening statements and there's closing statements so by the time it's over how wh- how much time did you really have for a debate about an hour and 10 minutes
3: yeah probably roughly about there because you, you figure i think it was a minute opening statements and a minute closing statements for everyone so yeah, you're talking at least, uh, you know, with seven candidates on the stage, you're talking about 15 minutes off the board right there. And uh, I, I agree. I'm actually hopeful that with the uh, second debate that they're doing next Tuesday, that, um, you know, we, we can just do away with those because you yeah, know, yeah. opening closing statements. And, and, and that's not to say that the candidates didn't use their time. You know, I thought Kevin Kelly gave a pretty strong you know opening and closing statement, but how much do you really gain?
0: Yeah. Right.
3: That's, I what say what something?
1: do you really glean?
0: Jane Cahoon. Yeah.
1: You know, we just don't have debates anymore. You know, the format dictated really that this wasn't going to be a de- debate. I am I mean, I'm not criticizing anybody in particular, but the way it's set up where you have a question and somebody answers the question, the the, the highlights for me was when the candidates took the opportunity to directly address one another. Like when Kelly said to Kucinich, you, you can't, you you know, you can't back up this plan that you have for the 400 police officers. And you, you know, when when they did that, and um, I think Justin Bibb did it once where he, he kind of called out Kelly on the whole public comment thing saying, you didn't do that. It was because activists demanded that, that you do it, you know. Um, So, but there just aren't that many opportunities with, with that kind of format to get wouldn't, in those kinds of jabs.
0: Wouldn't it be great if the setup was that you had, you had tandems like you, you tell Sandra Williams, okay, Sandra Williams, you can ask Zach Reed a question, Zach Reed, you can ask Kevin Kelly a question <laughs> and, and have that. And then they get to respond, right? So, so, so Zach asks Kevin Kelly a question. Kevin Kelly answers. It gets in Zach Reed's face. Zach gets to respond and then you move on. At, at least there's back and forth there, that, that you just don't, I mean, there's no there's no holding feet to the fire in in this. And I it, part of what a voter wants to see is how quick do these people think on their feet and, and what do they have in their arsenal? What kind of facts do they have at their fingertips? Do they know what they're talking about? Uh, and I just don't think you got the flavor of that from this format. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What bold step is Cuyahoga County finally proposing to take to find enough jail guards at the county jail. Laura Johnston, it's almost like they were listening to this podcast last week.
2: That's what I was going to say. I said is if you like to quote Joe Biden on this podcast, they're paying them more money. <laughs> so this offer still requires approval by the union later this month and county council, but it would raise the starting salary for new hires from about $19.12 per hour to $24. They, they also get substantial raises for the existing officers anywhere from the 1977 to $25 an hour that a first year officer makes up to about $28 per hour. Plus they get a 2% raise at the beginning of 2022, which was already negotiated. So with overtime pay factored in, they could make $67,000 per year. Plus if they have perfect attendance, they could get $1,000 every quarter for not missing a day on, on excuse. So this would take them from some of the least paid in the state to some of the best paid. And and they're hoping that this would keep, well, recruit more officers and keep the ones they have because this is a tough job to hire for.
0: Well, and and as important, they didn't say this, it raises the professionalism. You get a higher quality of officer when you start to pay more. And th- this has been a solution that's been staring them in the face for three years. And, you know, again, we talked about it just last week. It's like, this is not hard. Pay them more. But but it's good to see th- this wasn't some small increment. They're making a big leap. We're going to pay them as the professionals they are, and we're going to give them incentives to be there every day. It's smart, it, it's not ridiculously expensive, and it really could go a long way to solving some problems down there. I can't imagine the union is gonna turn this down. Uh,
2: yeah, and county council is certainly not going to turn it down, but yeah, this could address a whole host of issues, not just the lack of officers, because there's 576 right now, they need at least 650, and these but these shortages have caused numerous hardships for the inmates. Where they red zone or yellow zone, which we talked about in this podcast, basically keeping people in their cells. It's caused problems at the juvenile detention center. Not sure how this is going to translate there for those officers, but there was a shortage there and there was this big disturbance on Saturday night. There was property damage. There was at least some minor injuries. So, I mean, it's the cost of not paying enough is really expensive when you think about all the problems it causes
0: right we said that last week that this is cheaper than the alternative because the lawsuits cost you millions well we don't say it often but a salute to the county administration of Armin budish for taking a bold step to do the right thing you're listening to this week in the cle we were very surprised last year to learn that some people plotted in ohio to kidnap michigan governor gretchen whitmer now we know they had others in their sights Jane Cahoon, who were they? And man, 2020 really was the year of the loons.
1: Yeah, we got uh, they had Governor Mike DeWine in their sights, as well as the Virginia governor, uh, Ralph Northam. That's This is according to a court filing on uh, Monday in, in federal court in Michigan. You know, it, it's weird when this news came out a number of people were saying, what? wasn't that already reported that that DeWine was a target here? But in fact, this was the first time DeWine has been identified as a target of this particular group of militia members who were accused of, of plotting to kidnap Governor Whitmer. So as I said, this court filing uh, in the case of these men who are arguing that they were entrapped by authorities, you know, this was the government kind of making its case against that claim that they were entrapped. But anyway, in the filing, prosecutors said that these men, during a June 6, 2020 meeting, proposed attacking the governors of Michigan, Ohio, and Virginia. Uh, Apparently, they were mad about the, the, governor's response to the coronavirus pandemic. It doesn't state where the meeting took place, but federal prosecutors have previously revealed this June 6, 2020 planning meeting, as you said, that happened in Ohio, in in Dublin, a Columbus suburb. And uh, one member of the group apparently brought an improvised explosive device to the meeting and said he planned to use it according to the filing. But um, the group apparently met again in Ohio on July eighteenth by and by that time they had they had narrowed in on on Michigan uh, and Whitmer. So, um, as I said, we knew about this Ohio meeting, you know, back in the fall. And at that time, DeWine was asked about it, and he said he was unaware of of this plot against Whitmer being planned in Ohio, and he condemned it, of course. And then, likewise, on Tuesday, his spokesman, Dan Tierney, said DeWine learned of the threat against him through the news reports, and and he said the alleged threats against state leaders are despicable and have no place in the American political system
0: yeah this also took place let's let's face it this took place in the face of people in the legislature in dewine's own party saying things like he should be arrested and and he should Mm -hmm. be deposed so so there were people in the republican party in ohio in leadership positions that we're creating this rhetoric. And we all know that with a significant portion of the population, they're kind of sheep-like. And so if if legislators are saying, ah, Mike DeWine's a bad guy, we should arrest him, we should depose him, not really surprising that some Wahoos who get together to take matters into their own hands target him. I would yeah, love okay. to understand why they decided on Whitmer instead of DeWine. I'll, I'll bet it has something to do with her being a woman because they're probably A woman and a
1: Democrat, and I don't know. Um you know, DeWine's a Republican, obviously, but, um, you know, I think you mentioned these um, kind of crazy things <laughs> that, that we did write about uh, something back in October uh, after the, the Whitmer plot was revealed. This guy in Miami County told authorities, Miami County, Ohio, that he was approached by somebody who told him about some crazy plot to put DeWine under house arrest for tyranny and, and right. to try him for crimes. So so that came out right around the same time i mean that that wasn't associated with this militia thing but it's as you said you know enough people uh use that kind of rhetoric and it it could become really dangerous
0: well and it went all the way up to the president united states which is why we had january 6th it shows the danger that there are people who will respond to this with very very sinister plots you're listening to this week in the cle why does Republican Jim Renacci seem to be unable to get any traction in his challenge to Mike DeWine's reelection bid as governor of Ohio? And what do we expect Renacci to say in his city club speech Friday? Seth Richardson, we talked last year about how we thought that DeWine would have a legitimate challenge from the far right side of the Republican Party, which had said all sorts of nasty things about him last year. Renacci's the candidate, but nobody's paying attention to him.
3: Well, Jim Renacci's problem is that he did so horribly in 2018. Frankly, that that that's what it is. Uh, you know, in 2018, he really kind of tried to position himself as this you know, er Trump candidate of sorts. And you know, the big the big knock against him is that he said he was going to you know give him you know loan himself four million dollars and use it in the race, and then never did. So it seems like a bait and switch, and a lot of people do think of it as a bait and switch. So I think there's a lot of hesitancy to give anything to Jim Renacci after seeing, you know, just how much he fumbled the, you know, Senate race. And on top of that, they're skeptical of giving him money because he literally did not put his money where his mouth was. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't use his four million dollars. So I, I think that is going to be something that basically follows him throughout. And I, I, I think there's also just, you know. Yeah, he just announced he's running for governor, but for all intents and purposes, he's basically been campaigning for governor for the past four years, right, through his pack that he was running and, you know, kind of his, you know, his Twitter comments and his Facebook comments. So I, I, I think that um, amongst a lot of Republicans, there's just some tiring of that, you know, they like, oh, let's, you know, we want somebody else in there, which is why you do see at least some, a little bit of clamoring for like a Warren Davidson, you know, as far as what he's going to say at his city club speech Friday, I, I, I think it's probably going to be a lot of what he's been saying on Twitter, right? He's going to, you know, claim Mike DeWine is corrupt because of the uh, house bill six stuff. He's going to say that uh, Ohio needs a businessman, you know, a, a governor who runs the state like a business because the state is a business. It's really going to be a lot of, um, you know, the same stuff he's basically been saying the past four years.
0: Is it is it an actual speech or is it one of the conversations that uh, Dan Malthrop, the CEO over there, has been doing with different politicians? Do you know?
3: I believe it is their normal Friday kind of Q&A. It's and the A Friday that, speech. Okay. Yeah, I, I believe it's the Friday speech.
0: So we'll get 30 minutes of Jim Renacci rhetoric followed by questions, which could be interesting because the City Club crowd is pretty... Um, pretty split on, on background. We'll have to see. You're listening to this week in this CLE. We've had changes in leadership at Cleveland's big hospitals. We're going to have a new mayor. We have a new leader at the greater Cleveland partnership, who is the latest Cleveland leader to announce he is moving on Lord Johnson. This is pretty big news just this morning.
2: Yeah. Ognie Napoli he's the president and CEO of the United way of greater Cleveland. He will step down in June, next June. After six years, so he's got a long career in nonprofits, and his goal at the United Way to was really restructure the focus on the process of the fundraising and the giving out the dollars to make every dollar donated really focus on urgent community needs and make it work harder. And he really focused on trying to break the generational cycle of poverty. So it now has this community hub for basic needs. This is the response to that and it focuses on children, working adults and seniors. And um, Paul Dolan, who serves as the chair of the United Way board, he really thanked him, said that he's been laser focused on metrics and the individuals behind that, leaving us better able to track our progress going forward. Because obviously, not just coronavirus, but this is not an easy time to be leading a nonprofit and figuring out, you know, you don't have unlimited money just to spread around like peanut butter anymore.
0: Yeah, the, the United Way model has been so challenged. I mean, we can speak of our own industry. We know what it's like to be in a challenged model. Uh, but but he really has had to battle that, that the workplace campaigns that had marked the United Way for decades kind of fell apart. And the 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 younger generations that have come along don't like giving to a middleman. They want to give directly to the the specific charities they believe in, and so he's he's been working hard to navigate that to to maintain a place because the United Way does a lot of good. That two one one line that it runs helps so many people every year. Um, yeah, so it's some big shoes to fill. Uh, he he says he'd like to stay on the United Way board so they could still take advantage of his expertise, but finding. Uh, somebody to replace him is not going to be easy because it's going to have to be somebody that's up for a major challenge.
2: Yeah. So that's, I think, why they gave a year, you know, almost to keep, to look. And so Brian Richardson, he's the executive vice president and chief administrator, miss sorry, <laughs> chief administrative officer of COVIA is going to lead this board search committee. So there's quite a long time to, to figure it out and to do a transition.
0: Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE Let's do one more. Cleveland honored one of its beloved sports heroes in a big way Tuesday on his 88th birthday. Who is he and what's the honor? Laura Johnson, turn it back to you because you're our sports expert. I
2: love that. Um, Indian's icon, Rocky Colavito. he now has a statue in Little Italy. And so he was back in Cleveland from his Reading, Pennsylvania home to, to celebrate his 88th birthday and see this bronze sculpture at Tony Brush Park unveiled. And this statue is by David Deming, who's created the likeness of Larry Doby, Lou Boudreau, and Jim Tomey at Progressive Field. So they really match. And it captures Colavito in his prime when he used to stroll the plate at at the Municipal Stadium and intimidate pitchers. He hit, I don't even know how you say this, but do you say 0.266 over 14 seasons in the big leagues? Most of them were in Cleveland. He got uh, traded to Detroit in 1965 years later he was back but he is beloved it was a, a groundswell effort grassroots to get this statue here and um, there's going to be four ro- there are four rose bushes planted at the park near the statue one for every home run he hit on June 10th 1959 which was his most memorable day as an indian
0: my favorite moment mark bonar long time uh, sp- uh, reporter uh, has has covered a lot of sports news um, and he posted a picture of himself on social media with Rocky, with the note saying I'm 56. I've been a journalist for 30 years. It's the first time I've ever asked for a picture like this. And I'm, I'm proud of it. It's one of his personal heroes. And it just like, I mean, he, I think he was just so glad that Calavito showed up for this because it's somebody that Mark has always wanted to actually meet. It's a, it's a great moment. Good moment for him. Good moment for sports fans. You're listening to This Week in the CLE, and that'll close out another discussion of the news. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.